Uh, some of you may have seen this, um, this graphic that's up there. Maybe you've seen it repeatedly lately. It comes from Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, or um, he also has a really famous TED Talk from a few years back, um, and he emphasizes the importance of not just knowing what we do, uh, but knowing why we do what we do. So most, kind of the, the, the thesis, the idea is that um, pretty much anybody can tell you, any organization, any church, any business, any person can usually tell you, this is what I do. Uh, a few can tell you how they do what they do, but not many can say, this is why we do what we do. This is the core. This is the purpose. This is the reason. This is why I get out of bed every day. And so um, he asked the question in his book and in his TED Talk, you know, why do some uh, individuals, why do some organizations inspire us, uh, and why do others, uh, others don't inspire us? Why did the Wright brothers get off the ground when other people were trying to build an airplane at the same time with more money, more resources? Uh, there was something about the Wright brothers that, 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 that uh, it was inspirational, it was powerful. Uh, why, uh, why does Martin Luther King Jr. continue to inspire us? There were other people um, that, that wanted to see uh, the world change. How come he led a movement? How, how come he continues to inspire us? He, he, he didn't just focus on, uh, on what needed to change. He gave us why, right? He had a dream, and we gathered around that dream. People gathered around that dream, rallied around that dream. Uh, some people are, are rabidly devoted to, to, to Apple, uh, and, uh, and, and Apple is clear on uh, why they do what they do. And so this golden circle idea from, from Simon Sinek is this idea that, that uh, the why is at the center. And then out of that, our why impacts our how, and after that, it impacts our what. So most of us, we spend most of our time thinking about what we do. And so, like, think about it as a church. Maybe we, if somebody says, tell me about your church, you might say, well, we do Sunday school, I'm in life groups, we've got Regen coming up, we've got Reengage, uh, we've got a greeting ministry, we've got a bus, we've got a, some great stuff that happens. On, that's all what. But what our elders spent the last four weeks leading you through is why. Why do we do what we do? Because we believe the gospel is the central, uh, the central message that transforms lives and transforms the world. We believe that relationships uh, matter. That, that's why we do what we do, right? So, uh, so our, our values that, that, that our elders have been uh, leading you through the past few weeks, um, that's the why of what we do what we do. Um, and, and it's really easy to lose sight of the why. Um, so we went to Disneyland a few weeks ago. We were a couple weeks ago. We were in California, and so we said we thought, well, we'll surprise the kids, go to Disneyland. And um, when when uh, Walt Disney dedicated Disneyland 64 years ago, he said these words. And by the way, he's another why person. He's a guy who whose imagination and inspiration continues to inspire today. And and he was able to accomplish what really no one else had ever accomplished. Uh, but but he said at the at the um, opening of Disneyland, he said the idea of Disneyland is a simple one. It will be a place for people to find happiness and knowledge. It will be a place for parents and children to spend pleasant times in one another's company. A, that's a simple statement, isn't it? But it captures why. And so as, when we were there a couple weeks ago, you, it was clear some cast members, that's what they call employees, some employees were clear on their why. Some viewed their why as we want to bring magic to guests. Some viewed their why as I'm here to push buttons, pull levers, and herd people into lines. Who was better, who was better at their job? Um, the ones that were there to, that, that, that knew the what or those that knew the why. It's really easy for us to lose sight of the why. Teachers are going back to school. Teachers, you ever get fuzzy on why? Preachers sometimes get fuzzy on why. Um, students, like, 
probably good for you to think about, why do I do this? Why am I getting an education? Why? What's the purpose behind that? So if you think about your job, a lot of us would say, well, the, the why of my job is to make money, but that's, that's a result, that's an outcome. Why do you get out of bed every morning? Why do you do what you do? What's the passion that drives you? And when we lose sight of our why, life gets muddy, life gets murky. And so in marriage, sometimes we lose sight of the why. Parenting, sometimes we lose sight of the why, and we start to think that our job as parents is we wake up the kids at this time, we put them to bed at this time, we try to teach them not to cuss too much, we keep them alive. No, that's what we do. Okay, don't smoke meth very often, whatever, you know? Like, like no, there's got to be more than that, right? Why? Why are we? Or what's the why of parenting? If you're, if you're a Christian, the why is to raise adults who love and know Christ and want to make him known. That's the why, right? But it's easy to get, to get hazy on that. It's easy to miss that. Um, whether it's dating or marriage or parenting or work, we've got to constantly remind ourselves of what's the why, what's the purpose, what's the meaning. All right, and so there's been so much news lately um, about people wreaking terror uh, around them right here on our own shores. You might have missed the news about this Middle Eastern terrorist. And, and it's like we hear Middle Eastern terrorists and we say, oh, not again, you know. And this uh, is a, a religious zealot fueled by pride and this idea that uh, he was right and everybody else was wrong. And this was over in the Middle East. He was going, he was specifically targeting, I don't know if you read the story, he was specifically targeting Christians and, and, and uh, throwing them in jail and, and harming them and, and, uh, and was totally unremorseful about it. And when we hear about a guy like that, don't we just kind of want to just like, shake him or punch him in the face or something? And, 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 uh, and, and, and what happened was this guy was moving into Syria. So we hear Syria, we think, oh man, yeah, we, what a crazy part of the world. And what happened was on his way, Saul, that was his name, he encounters the risen Jesus. And he falls off of his horse, and he goes from being a terrorist to being the most impactful follower of Christ that's ever lived. He discovered his why, and all of us are the beneficiaries of that. Paul's why. He went from being Saul, named after the proud, tall, beautiful king of Israel, first king of Israel, to being Paul, which means small and humble one. His why was the gospel and everything about his life changed and our our word to you this morning is you will not be content in your what until the gospel is your why until the gospel is your why your parenting is not going to bring contentment your 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 husbanding or wifing isn't going to bring contentment your work is not going to bring contentment you will not be content in your what until the gospel is the why until the gospel is why we wake up every day and it's the passion that drives us like it was the apostle paul we will not have contentment in any of the what that we do and so romans 1 this introduces paul's letter to the romans paul writes this letter to the most influential city at the heart of his world um and and uh, it's in and, and this chapter is the launch pad for things that he's going to build on throughout the letter and he, he wrote this letter probably in the mid-50s. He probably wrote it from this. He was in the city probably of Corinth, and he writes to, 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 to Rome, and he wants to go to Rome. And uh, kind of the circumstances here, uh, this is uh, the first century Roman Empire. It's a time of moral decay. 
Uh, people were saying, man, our, where are our values? Where have our values gone? There was a time of violence and injustice. Can we, let's try to suspend uh, disbelief for a moment and imagine a world like that, okay? Can, can we imagine a world where morality's gone out the window and it's violent and unjust? And then uh, another thing that's going on is in the church at Rome, for a variety of reasons, there's some conflict um, between Jews and Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. So I know that's a really a big leap of imagination, but imagine a world where there's ethnic strife and racial tension, even in church. Like, can we imagine that? Even in church, racial tension and ethnic tension, and yet Paul, that was sarcasm, by the way. I think we were like, are you stupid or what? Yeah, so... Uh, uh, I'm not as stupid as I look. Um, And so Paul has the audacity and the foolishness, some would say, to write to Rome and say that the answer to all that is this message that Jesus Christ, this crucified Jew from a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire, this crucified and risen one is the Lord of the universe and Caesar is not. And that's why he's going to go on to say, I'm not ashamed of this message, as crazy as it sounds. It's the answer to injustice and inequality and racism then, and it's the answer to those things now. All right? And so, everybody was looking for the answer. A lot of smart people were spilling a lot of ink. If they had had 24-hour news then there'd be people that were filling every minute of it saying this is the answer no this is the answer no this is the answer and Paul raises his hand and says I've got the answer and the answer is found in a person and his name is Jesus Christ and so we're calling this series 16 words because each week we're going to take a chapter of Romans and we're going to highlight one word that's the theme of that of that chapter a theme uh, of, of of this book and so our word today is gospel and, and, and we hear that word gospel, and some of us, maybe that we've been in church a few days or months or years or decades, we might say, oh, it's time for me to check out. I mean, I know what the gospel, I, I know all about the gospel. Tell me something I don't know. And the reality is for Paul and for the entire New Testament, gospel isn't just this doorway that starts our walk, uh, that gets us into the Christian life and then we abandon it. We don't ever get deeper than the gospel. Our entire lives are about sinking our roots deeper and deeper and deeper into this truth that Jesus Christ has died. He's risen and he's the Lord of the universe today. And so that word gospel in the Old Testament, you might write down Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 and following. Um, and in that passage, um, we read, um, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God, your Lord God, comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Gospel in the Old Testament is this message that God rules. Your exile is over. Babylon has fallen. God has come to dwell with his people and God rules among his people. And in the Roman Empire in the first century, they had their own idea of what gospel means. Gospel was that word, evangelion, was the word that was announced uh, when there was a new Caesar that had taken his throne. Caesar rules, Caesar rules. Caesar's gonna fight your battles for you. Caesar has overcome. Caesar has all the answers. And Paul takes that Old Testament idea of gospel and that contemporary idea of gospel and he and the other new testament writers um, say that gospel gospel in the new testament is this good news that jesus not caesar jesus is lord 
of the universe, that Jesus has fought the battle, Jesus has overcome the enemy, Jesus has taken his, his seat as king of the universe, and he rules and he reigns right now. I think Jimmy Kimmel did a on late night, you know, did a thing where he, he went around on the street and he, uh, he uh, was showing people a map of the United States. And he was in the United States, showing people a map of the United States and saying, what country is this? And there were people that couldn't tell him you know, what country that was, and we're like, oh, man, well, but a lot of us Christians, if we were put on the spot by Jimmy Kimmel to say, tell me what the gospel is, how many of us would say something like, be nice, and be good, do good things, go to Sunday school, that's not the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death we deserved, rose from the dead, and rules and reigns today. And so as we, as we jump into Romans 1, Paul's going to tell us what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Everybody still okay? All right, Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. My translation is really nice. It says servant, but yours may be a little more accurate and say slave. What Paul says is, I am a slave. He doesn't say, I graduated from the Theological Institute of Jerusalem. He says, I'm a slave. I have no rights. I have no will other than to do what my master tells me to do. Did anybody know that's what we were signing up for when we became a Christian? Anybody tell you that? I don't, when Paul says I'm a slave, he's saying the gospel impacts me in such a way that I'm not running my life anymore. I think sometimes we forget to tell people that. And we wonder why they fall away. The gospel means that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, Matt's not. Will's not. You're not. Paul's first description of himself is that he is a slave. He is not his own master. He says, I'm called to be an apostle. If you've had an encounter with the gospel, that means you're not your own anymore. That means you're called. And then he says, third, set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, That word set apart is a really neat word. It's the root word of, of, of Pharisee, Paul's old lifestyle. But where Paul used to be a Pharisee set apart from everything. Now he says, I'm set apart for something. To be a Christian, to be a gospel person, to be a gospel man, a gospel woman, a gospel child, isn't just to say, here's all the things I don't do anymore. It's not just being set apart from, it's being set apart for. I have a new reason to exist. I have a why, and my why is to share the gospel everywhere I go. The gospel is my why? My why is to help others go deeper in the gospel and find their identity in the gospel and to find it for myself. That word set apart is where we get our word horizon. So in our house, we've been watching a lot of Pirates of the Caribbean lately, and so I love the, you know, all the nautical imagery here. But the horizon, you, know, you just picture you know, you're out on a ship and you look out on the horizon. The horizon is that line where the sky is separated from the ocean or where the sky is separated from the land. And if you're a gospel person, if I'm a gospel person, for Paul to be a gospel person means I'm separated not just from everybody else around me, yes. Not just like everybody else, or I'm not a gospel person. I'm not quoting, uh, you know, I'm not rushing out on social media to say the same thing CNN's saying or the same thing Fox News is saying because I have a better story. I have a better Lord. When tragedy strikes, I'm not just parroting what the pundits on TV are saying because I've got a better story than that. I'm set apart, but he's not just set apart from everybody else. He's set apart from the man he used to be. That's what it means to be a gospel person. It means there's a line now between you and who you used to be. 
Paul's no longer a religious elite full of boasting and arrogance, but he's a slave to King Jesus set apart, and there's a line. Paul's encounter makes him a gospel man. And so I was reading this uh, story about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, uh, when, he gave his, uh, when he committed his life to Christ, Charles Spurgeon went on in the 1800s to be the most effective minister and, 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 and evangelist, one of the most effective the world has ever seen. All right? Uh, and uh, he, uh, he ducked into a primitive Methodist church there in England in a terrible snowstorm. And the primitive Methodists were not known for being eloquent or for being, this isn't a slam on method, this is a, uh, you know, primitive Methodists were, were kind of thought to be emotional and kind of simple. And he ducks into this primitive Methodist gathering, there's just a handful of people there, and the preacher doesn't show up. And they wait, you know how preachers are, they wait and they wait and they wait and the preacher doesn't show up. So finally this layman gets up out of his seat and walks up to the front and he begins to preach. Uh, Spurgeon says, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. Okay? Let that soak in for a second. Not a smart man. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, I know how Spurgeon felt that day. But anyway, we'll move on. Uh, he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words right. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. A preacher, not even a preacher, a, a layperson, walks up, can't even read or speak. He reads this simple verse. Charles Spurgeon comes alive. He goes on to impact thousands, millions of people, including us sitting in this room today what if that layman had taken the easy road what if he had just complained that the preacher didn't show up what would you have done can't believe that preacher didn't show i'm here why isn't the preacher here what do we pay that guy for what if he had just complained what if he had just criticized that somebody else needs to do this a lot of what we're saying the church needs to do we're not doing ourselves have you ever noticed that the next time you're, you're talking about something the church needs to do once you go look in the mirror and tell yourself to do that thing because I'm sick of hearing what the church should do when the church is telling me what the church should do. You are the church. Do it. Anybody? That layman got up and he went to his feet and he shared a simple... He could have said, I don't know how to talk. I'm not smart. I'm not educated. Aren't those all the things we would say? But what would the world have missed out on? Man, what would the world... What does the world miss out on when you withhold what God calls you to do. The source of the gospel. Paul says it's the gospel, verse 1. Still in verse 1. It's the gospel of God. God is the author. God is the source. Paul's a slave. He's a mailman. He's not, you know, he, he's, not, uh, he, he's, not, he's not coming up with this. It comes from God. God's the most important character in Romans. And we tend to focus on the messenger. But like, I just ordered this, I, I order all kinds of cool stuff off of Amazon.com. I thought it was going to save me so much money to be a Prime member. And now I like order stuff that I would never buy anywhere, you know, if you found this problem. And so I had this awesome ice cream maker show up to the house. And, but I didn't tell the UPS guy, hey man, would you come in and make this ice cream maker for me? Hey, why, why won't you put it together and make my ice cream? No, that's not his job. His job is to deliver. And once he delivers, his work is finished. If you've received the gospel, 
the messenger's job is done. And now you and I become messengers to share that life-changing message to everybody we encounter. He gives the gospel roots, verse 2. It's he, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The gospel has roots in its the scripture. He says that the story of the gospel has its roots in the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't just drop out of thin air. The gospel doesn't just appear out of nothingness. It has its roots in the Old Testament story, creation and the call of Abram and exile and prophets and all that leads up to the answer who is Jesus. Paul says that the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself, son of David, son of God, crucified, resurrected, weak, empowered at the heart of the gospel as Jesus is Lord. And, and we haven't shared the gospel until we've shared who Jesus is. We've encouraged, we've said nice things, we've been friendly, but until we say this is Jesus and this is what Jesus has done in my life, we have not yet shared the gospel. At the heart of the gospel is Jesus is Lord. The scope of the gospel, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, for the sake of his name among the nations. Among the nations. The scope of the gospel is for everybody. It's for everybody. So there's no room for, uh, for uh, racial superiority. That's opposite to the gospel. There's no room for uh, white nationalism or any other kind of nationalism. There's no room for any message that says that I am exalted over my fellow man. Gospel people have more in common with gospel people around the world than they do with people in their own political party that don't know the gospel. Let me say that again. You, if you know Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord, you have more in common with somebody south of the border that knows Jesus than you do somebody from your town and your political party that doesn't know Jesus. But we've got it flipped and we wonder why the gospel has no power in our midst. We have more uh, unity with people that vote like us and think like us than we do with those who share the blood of Jesus Christ. That is satanic. The scope of the gospel is all the nations. The center of the gospel of Jesus, the fruit of the gospel is obedience. Paul talks about the obedience of faith, verse 5. Listen, guys, there's some of us in here saying, you know what, I know I'm shacked up with my with my." Girlfriend, I, I know I'm addicted to porn. I know I keep going back to gossip and I just keep going back to that water cooler even though I know I shouldn't be gossiping. But, you know, Jesus is cool with that. I mean, he knows, he knows me. He knows how I'm, I am. You need to really think about that. If you or I are at peace with sin, we cannot say we're at peace with God. If we've made peace with sin... We are not at peace with God. Now, do you struggle? Yeah, and I do. I'm the chief of sinners in this room. My sin is repugnant. But God convicts me of my sin, and by his grace I repent of my sin. And by his grace I draw a line between me and my sin, between me and the man that I used to be, and that's what God calls you and I all to do. The gospel results in repentance, not just staying the same way. If we've made friends with sin, if we've made peace with sin, we cannot call ourselves friends of God. And that's not judgmental, guys. That truth will set you free. The fruit of the gospel is obedience. The fruit of the gospel is repentance. 
Skip down to verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he be ashamed? You, you know, when it's like somebody saying, I'm not racist or I'm not sexist, you're all of a sudden saying, well, why are you saying that then? Why is Paul saying I'm not ashamed? Well, maybe he, like all of us, is tempted to be. Maybe he's tempted to be. Because here he is riding to the most powerful place on earth. And he's saying, I'm about to tell you that the answer to all this the crucified and resurrected Jesus who's the Lord of the universe. I'm about to tell you that not only is Caesar not Lord of your life, but you're not Lord of your life. We tend to be ashamed. You know, everybody's talking about how do we fix this? How do we fix that? And we're kind of ashamed to say, you know what? Let's, I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to return to Christ. Not just everybody else out there needs to repent. Guys, I'm going to be on my face repenting. I'm, 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 I'm putting my roots deeper in the gospel. I'm seeking God like I've never sought him before. That's the answer, but we're kind of ashamed to say that because it kind of sounds churchy in Sunday school, doesn't it? And yet the world doesn't have any new problems. It's the same problems we've always had, and the answer is the same it's always been. Know Jesus. Make Jesus known. He goes on to say that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. There's this problem. Like, the people are asking, how can God be faithful to his people when his people are such a mess? How can God be just or righteous and honor and be faithful to his people when his people are the problem? And the answer to that problem is found in Jesus. Jesus comes and he lives the life we couldn't live dies the death we deserve to live. And now he's the risen Lord over the universe. And that's what Paul's going to unpack the rest of the book. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, verse 17. That means it reveals his mercy and his justice. So as we close up, um, you and I are tempted to shrink the gospel. By the time we walk out of those doors, we're going to be trying to shrink it. Don't shrink the gospel. You remember Beetlejuice, that guy in the waiting room that had the little bitty head? Rebecca, you remember that guy, right? Yeah? And so this morning they were like, movies, we don't watch that. We're, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. So if we shrink the gospel, what ends up is we, get, we end up with withered hearts and shrunken minds. That's a problem in our culture today. We've got political parties offering extremist answers, polarized answers, and gospel people are just falling in line with that. Here's the solution. Here's the solution. God, the gospel opens up our imagination, opens up our heart. And if our gut response to a tragedy, again, is to offer talking points from pundits on TV, we're missing something, guys. We're missing something. We've forgotten how to grieve and how to dream, but God expands our minds and expands our hearts with his gospel. Notice in... in, in in 116, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's the word dynamite, dunamis, dynamic. He, he doesn't say the gospel carries God's power. He says it is God's power. The simple message that Spurgeon heard. That Christ died, Christ is raised, Christ rules today. That is the power of God that will set you free. Set your neighbor free. So don't be ashamed of it. Don't hide it under a bushel. 
So I, I used to have this friend in a youth group years ago named Lewis, and, and, and I was his youth pastor, then I was his pastor, and Lewis the funny kid, but, but I used to do this thing around the 4th of July um, where he would light up a black cat, you know, and like throw it, like one of the little firecrackers, and right when he would light it, I'd say, hey, Lewis, he'd go, what? And then poof, it would just blow up in his hands, you know, and it was hilarious. Every time it was hilarious, and it happened every time. But, you know, that black cat just kind of gave him an emotional surprise or a bump. It didn't rearrange his life. And Paul says the gospel isn't a black cat. It's not a firecracker. It's dynamite. And it will wreck your life. It will reorient your life. It will, if, if Lewis had been holding dynamite, I'd said, hey, Lewis, I mean, there would have been pieces of Lewis everywhere, and somehow we've bought this lie that we can just sprinkle a little Jesus on top of what we're already doing and stay the same. It's not the gospel. The gospel will wreck you. The gospel wrecked Paul. The gospel will, 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 will mess up your day. God lays claim to every bit of us. Ernest Shackelford in the 1800s was taking an expedition to the South Pole and he, he ran an ad like this. Men wanted for hazardous journeys, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Would you have been in line for that? Jesus says, follow me, and while you're doing it, take up your cross every single day. He bids us come and die. Die to self. Totally sold out for him. And Jesus believes, and Paul believes, and that, that skinny uh, layman in, in Spurgeon's church that day believed, and Spurgeon believed, and down the line, so you and I, are we going to believe that our greatest joy will be found in losing everything for the sake of the cross of Christ? That our greatest joy will be found not in demanding our way and demanding our rights, but in serving him as a slave. We forget the gospel. That's why we got to do this all the time is because we forget it. I forget it. You forget it. We got to remind each other. We tame the gospel. The gospel's for people that look like me and act like me and think like me and dress like me. Don't we ever do that? We limit the gospel. Some of us are saying the gospel's all about them out there. I mean, I already, I already walked the aisle. I know the gospel. It's them that need the gospel. Careful, the gospel is still dynamite. God still wants and is at work rearranging your life. And if that's not happening, guys, if we're the same person we were when we met Jesus on the road, if nothing's changed, I'm not saying if you're not perfect, but if nothing's changed, ask yourself if you know him, if you really met him. The hardest part about ministering in this part of the world is people think they're Christians that are not. Paul's obsessed with, we, we think it's all about them or, or we try to make it all about me. And it's neither one of those. Keep going deeper in the gospel for you and that's gonna make you go farther for others. So preach the gospel to yourself, preach the gospel to Christians, preach the gospel to non-Christians. That may look like having a cup of coffee. As the band's coming up, I wanna just kind of close with there's a lot of important things in your life and mine 
our kids are important, our spouses are important, our neighbors are important, our work's important. But guys, we can only have one thing that's most important. There can only be one thing that's first. There's no such thing as priorities, plural. More than one thing can't be first. And until Christ has supremacy in your heart, until the gospel is first, until the gospel is your why, we won't be content, whatever our what is. One day, I'm going to stand before Jesus. And it's going to kind of feel like, you know, in my phone, I stumbled a while back on the setting that reveals the meter for how much time you spend in different apps. And man, I had been killing it in Candy Crush. I had been crushing candy like, I mean, you guys would have been proud of me. And then I, I saw the meter of how many hours of my short, brief existence I had spent crushing candy. And I wanted to throw up. Could have read the works of Shakespeare. So what do you think I did? I drew a line between me and Candy Crush. It's, it, it got deleted. Tune Blast probably needs to be delivered next, but you know, that's next week, okay? One day I'm going to stand before Jesus and judgment might be like... Um, Everybody sees the meter of how I spent my time. How much of your brief life are you going to spend complaining? How much of your brief life are you going to spend criticizing? How much of your brief moments on this planet are you going to spend worrying about things that are beyond your control? And how much time are you going to spend building your life on the only foundation that won't fail? and sharing it with other people.